Phoenix Tales is a community celebrating everyday women overcoming extraordinary challenges in their lives, discovering the fire within and like the phoenix enduring the ashes to rise again. Each of you has a phoenix tale or a phoenix moment. As we create this community of women with grace and grit, share your own phoenix tale or your own phoenix moment on our website. We're honored to hear another story to welcome another phoenix. Today's guest is Maida Wagner, the author of What's Your Creative Type? Harness the Power of Your Artistic Personality, and an instructor of creative and communications writing at Emerson College. With warmth, wit, and honesty, Maida recounts how losing her mother as a teen becomes the nexus of her finding and creating a life far removed from that personal tragedy. Please welcome Maida Wagner. Welcome, Maida. So the first question, actually the only question I ever ask to start this conversation is, was there an event in your life, personal or professional, that was challenging that might have reshaped the course of your own life? The most significant event of my life was when my mother died suddenly when I was 17. And that obviously came as a shock and was a horrible age to lose a mother, even though it's horrible at any age. And it really shaped me as an adult, especially because being 17, I was on the cusp of adulthood. And I think it directed me down certain paths that in some ways were beneficial, in some ways were very challenging to me. So did she die quite suddenly or had she been ill for a while? No, it was very sudden. She died of a aneurysm. And so she just woke up with a headache one day, you know, a searing headache, was taken to the hospital, went into a coma. And two days later, she died. And I was absolutely stunned. I'd always heard stories of how people come out of comas. And I just assumed she would. Like, of course she would. She was my mother. So right. it came as a complete shock. And um, unfortunately... If I were to search for the silver lining, I think it led me into greater creativity in a sense, because she was always such a cheerleader of any silly little drawing I did, any little poem I wrote or whatever. And I think I do feel influenced by her to kind of go down those, those paths because of her. So after your mother's death, I'm sure it reshifted or reorganized sort of the family dynamic since your father became a single parent. So how has that relationship changed? Oh, I've got quite a story for you on that one. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We had a, a friend group of five close friends in high school. And sadly, one of them, uh, her father died the summer before our senior year. And then my mother died that November. And half a year later, my father and her mother started dating. (laughs) And the following winter, they got married. So I have now for decades been stepsisters with one of my closest friends. So it's all very Brady Bunch. Did you have any resentment about that or you were happy? It was fast for me. It was fast for me. It felt too quick. And I think there was a little bit of an attitude of once you were in college, you were sort of a grown up and you were away most of the time anyway, but it's not true. You know, you're really home half the year 
And then my father moved into my stepmother's house. It was too many changes too quickly for my sake. Mm-hmm. And it took a toll. They, they've been together all these years. She's taking great care of him. He's been through some medical stuff recently, but doing great. But nobody likes to see their parent remarried and, and not that quickly, I guess. That's amazing. So yeah. can you go back to, you were just about to start college, I'm assuming at that age, or, and as yeah. you said, on the cusp of adulthood, how did it really reshape you during those first four years? I mean, those four years of college life where it can be so formative. My mother died right before I was to get my college applications in. You know, and I was like editor of the year, but I was doing all this stuff and I wanted life to kind of continue. I was also now cooking for me and my father. I was going to, um, in Judaism, you say a prayer every day for, I forget, I think 11 months. I basically woke up, went with my father to temple every morning at 6 a.m., came back, I dressed for school, went for a full day of school, did the yearbook stuff, did the other stuff I was you know, organized with came home, made dinner, <laughs> did my homework or saw my friends. It was a crazy time for me, but I wanted to keep busy because I didn't really want to deal with the reality of what had happened. When I went away to school, I felt very odd, like just this sort of a little bit of an outsider because who would have gone through that experience at that point? But I did have a great friend who had gone through that with her father and we kind of bonded over that. And then I met my husband, Matt, while I was still in school, even though he was in school in New York, he used to come up to Rhode Island. To be quite honest, I never imagined getting married so young, being attached so young, any of that. But I think part of it was because I, you know, I was like longing for connection with someone and longing for my own family in a sense. Mm -hmm. So everything got kind of sped up a little bit. And then after college, I went to law school as sort of the safe choice, I think, for me. And I just, I hated it the way I have never hated anything in my life. (laughs) I relate so hard to that. I I had never, I'm not going to say I never quit anything, but that was a huge thing to quit. And I woke up one morning after, I think I went for three semesters. So you can imagine the money I paid out after that. The student loans took 10 years to pay back for something I never completed. But I woke up one morning, I could not get out of bed. And I just called five, six different people. I was like, do I have to? And they were all like, no. And so I was like, that's it. I'm quitting. And you never saw anybody so happy to remember back in the day, you might even be too young for this. You would go to these temp agencies and they would see how fast you type. I could type crazy fast with a lot of errors, but they didn't count those. They just looked to see how fast you could type. And they got me a job, you know, like an administrative assistant job at National Audubon Society. And you never saw anybody so happy to take on like sort of just this sort of job job and just be free, be freed from law school. To this day, I'm not sure why I hated it so much. I don't think I would have hated the practice of law as much, but it felt like it took every creative little ounce of creativity in me and just squeezed it out. And it was all memorization and wrote, and it was just terrible. I just hated it. So I was so happy. I was so happy to go and take typing tests and all the stuff that I probably thought was beneath me. But in this circumstance, it was freedom. Wow. So because of the loss, do you think that really kind of created 
the foundation of your marriage? Because I know that you have a very long and happy marriage. I think I found somebody who, besides being very cute and very smart and and very successful, was very sweet and kind. I really sort of fell apart a couple of years into the relationship. And like four years after my mother had died, my senior year of college, I developed terrible insomnia, terrible phobias, really wasn't functioning that well. I wouldn't blame him if he had given, you know, he was like a 22 year old kid. If he had just been sort of like, oof, this is a bit much for me. This is not what I bargained for. Oh, because when he met me, I was just fine and delightful, you know, but but sometimes when you're with somebody like that, it kind of gives you permission to fall apart a little bit. And I think that's what he did for me. And then I, his family really adopted me too. I I was very close to his mother. I think it really, um, one thing definitely led to another in a way that it might not have otherwise. And so after uh, leaving law school delightfully, <laughs> delightedly. Um, <laughs> and delightfully, yeah. Right. So did you stay as an executive assistant or sort of what was the trajectory of your own career? So when I was at the Audubon Society, I was there just a few months. I was in the development office or fundraising, I think they just called it at the time, but I was always I always loved writing. I wanted to do something with writing. And I was always peeking my nose into the PR department to see what they were doing. Lo and behold, my husband's aunt was head of a nonprofit that is small, you know, like her and one other person. And they needed somebody to do PR. And I needed a job to get out of the situation I was in, which was fine, but not a career path. And so I became like the PR director with zero experience, but that's what I could put on my resume. That's the title they let me use, the National Huntington's Disease Association. And I just, I just learned on the job and it was fantastic. And after that, I got into an agency and then moved to Boston, got into other agencies. So I, I went down the agency path for a while, but that was my first kind of career entree into public relations. And that's what I did until I think when I met you in grad school, I was still had some PR clients. Then I left that whole world behind and got my MFA and started teaching and doing my own writing instead of writing under other people's names and writing press releases and stuff that didn't interest me that much anymore. How old were you when you had your son? I was 30 and he's now older than I was when I had him, which is really freaking me out. Um, (laughs) And I wish he would stop that. But um, yeah, I was 30. So as you know, I think for our generation, that was definitely on the young side, I would say, but it Mm -hmm. felt right. It felt good. And did the impact of losing your mother kind of shape you as a mother and how? Well, one thing for sure it did. And I was just talking to a friend whose mother died later, but she's going through the same thing this year is I felt very strongly I wanted to, you know, of course I want to live forever, but I wanted to, for sure, for my son to have his mom, at least through high school, right? And be in college and be a little bit on his way as an adult. 
And I wanted to live past when my mother died at age 51. So when I hit 51, it just felt momentous. Like I made it, you know, and her mother, my mother's mother died when my mother was 13. So we had this thing in my family. I thought I've got to break this curse, you know, I lucked out and he's gotten to have his mom and I got to live past when my mom did. And in terms of me as a mom, my mother was very strict, so I'm not that. I'm a total pushover. I would say we definitely could you know, just talk. I, I think some of it's just generational. Our generation just talks with their kids more and mm-hmm. less rules oriented. I think it shaped me like looking at, oh, what, what did I want to do that was like her? Like the love and support and encouragement but didn't want to do the strictness and the I'm the adult and you're the kid and that's the way it is kind of thing. So let's go back to the inflection point in which you quit your career and started your MFA. How old were you? I believe I was 39. So I was the old lady in class. And um, you are much older than I was. I think I was 32 or something. (laughs) Wasn't it? It was so, it was such a, counterpoint to going to law school straight from college and feeling like, oh, this is something I should do because I don't really know what I want to do with my life. And then to choose it at a later age was so much fun and meeting such great people. Obviously, I loved it. I just loved it. I loved it because I chose it. I loved it because it was something different to choose a new career path instead of doing the same thing for my whole life. It was really great. And um, I'm trying to remember how old Daniel was. So he must have been around nine, I guess. Yeah, because I, I remember when he had his uh, bar mitzvah. I think yeah. I, I was in L.A. and he had his bar mitzvah. That's right. He was nine, I think, when I started. And when I started teaching, I started teaching uh, first year writing in the beginning before I switched over to other topics. And I remember him asking me whether I decorated the classroom the way the elementary (laughs) school teachers did. So that's how young he was. And do you think that this, I mean, I'm assuming that going through something so cataclysmic and life altering does in a way provide you with sort of this inner strength and grit. Do you think that that was also instrumental in you making, you know, these big changes like leaving law school, which even if you hated something that much, is a hard thing to do. Like most people would just suffer through it and be like, okay, I'm just going to get this done and try to be a lawyer. They might not have that crisis until 10 years down the road. And then to leave another successful career and say, I want to do this. I mean, do you think that that strength came from having undergone such a traumatic and life-altering event? I think to some degree, you become aware of mortality in a way faster than other people. I didn't really have like a wild and crazy 20s. I was like forced into adulthood very fast. I'm going to go to law school, you know, like do sort of things that were like a little bit safer because life had become kind of scary and uncertain. Mm -hmm. And then I think into my later 20s and early 30s, even with having a child, which is a, a very adult responsibility, I felt much more free and I got through some of the insomnia and most of the phobias, not all, and just felt more myself again, but it took a while. And once I felt more myself again, I want to do the things I want to do. 
I enjoyed public relations a lot. I enjoyed the travel, but I also was, you know, the travel at that job started to be three times a month. Daniel, I think was five or six or seven at that time. I was like, that's, that's not going to work for me. I didn't feel like that was something I want to be away three times a month with my husband also having a busy travel schedule. So that kind of made me start to think, well, what else might I want to do? And what if I did go back to grad school? And then in grad school, I was like, what if I taught? Like, I never thought about teaching. So one thing starts to lead, it starts to snowball in a really fantastic way, actually. So my mom also lost her mother when she was 18. And something that I've always noticed about her is this sort of, it's not an immaturity in her personality, but just kind of like as if she were frozen in time on some level at that age, right? Oh, interesting. And it manifests in different ways. Like she has this like joie de vivre, like you do. She's very, she has an enjoyment for life, but she can also be like emotionally childlike about certain things, right? Yeah. Yeah. Do you think that that happened to you as well? I don't feel frozen in time. But I guess I do feel like I wanted to recover myself, you know, Mm -hmm. like when you go through something traumatic and then it starts to hit you in different stages. First, I was in some level of denial. And then once it started to really hit, I didn't feel like myself, you know, and I didn't like that. So I think I was very determined to get back to my usual self which generally is pretty optimistic and laugh a lot and all that stuff. I wanted myself back. I couldn't have my mother back, but I wanted myself back. Mm -hmm. And it took a while. It took a lot of work. And you always still have that sort of knowledge of things can change on a dime. It's a very, it's a horrible knowledge to have. And most, everybody knows that, but they don't really know it. And most people don't have to know that until maybe their 40s or something like that. And so it's it's not a great thing to have to carry through your 20s and 30s. So I had this sort of advanced knowledge of that. It brought a lot of fear with it. And then I, I had to work to get back to who I was. So maybe I am back to this 17-year-old in certain types of ways, but in other ways, of course, just way more mature than that and dealing yeah. with all of life's things. So Of course. Yeah. 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 And I think it's more about the essence like of you and her. They're very similar in certain ways. And I think it's it's this, and this is not to sound denigrating or belittling, but there's like a childlike wonder, right? Mm-hmm. And I haven't met many people that exude that kind of wonderment and childlike view of certain things. And my mom certainly does. And I think for you, for me, with you, it's always the sense of the joy that you find, which I think is amazing. Oh, thank you. So can we go back to you got through grad school and then you said you found this second career as a teacher. So can you tell the audience uh, what you teach and where? Yes. So I was in grad school with you at Emerson College in Boston. And then um, I tried out for this teaching first year writing. It's an extremely um, time-consuming job. And I loved it. I loved it from the day, first day I walked into a classroom. After 
maintenance came and unlocked the door to the classroom, by the way, which was locked. <laughs> and so that was my auspicious start to teaching, standing in a hallway with all my students. But once I started, it felt so natural to me. It just felt like it was, of course, it's a ton of effort, grading, trying to improve people's writing, all that kind of stuff. Creating a syllabus. Syllabus, I think being in a classroom felt completely natural to me from the very first second. It's hard to even describe like why that would be. It's some combination of performance and persona and your real self, but it's like an exaggerated sense of yourself. And the one-on-one with students, Emerson students tend to be very emotionally expressive and kind of... Yes, exactly. And I happen to love that. So, so I started with first year writing and first year research writing. And then I, I got the chance to teach a creative writing class. And then I got to start teaching purely nonfiction writing, uh, emphasizing personal essays. So I love, love, love that. And then I developed a course for the Liberal Arts Institute that my boss at the time called Creativity in Context, which I kind of loved because it's so vague that I could teach anything within it, basically. But the focus was on why people create. And I don't know if you know this. I will toot my own horn just for a second here. The incoming first-year students have a choice of X number of liberal arts classes. They don't want to take them. They just want to take film or they want to take writing or whatever. So they have to take a liberal arts course, which I'm a huge believer in. And my creativity class, I think at least one year, over 50% of students listed that as one of their top three choices. Oh, wow. Which was like, yeah, that really blew. It wasn't about me because they didn't know me, but it was about the description of the class and the idea that it could really apply to any major, basically. And just, it's, you know, it's wrestling with this huge, unanswerable question why people create. So looking at the psychology of it, looking at what creators themselves have said and the philosophy of it, I kept it as my baby, wouldn't let anybody else teach it and kind of relented recently. So now it's being taught three times each semester. And I guess admissions kind of uses it to lure students into Emerson. So I'm very proud of it. Nice. And then can you tell the audience what you did with that? Yes. Maybe this is something that would be of interest to the greater population of struggling creative people who are trying to find their way. And I kind of was thinking about one of the basic texts that I teach is George Orwell's Why I Write. And he has four key motivations that he lists out. And you know, some of them I thought were pretty apropos to this day, but didn't really cover more of the emotional aspects of things. And I just started really going down this rabbit hole of looking at artists, you know, their memoirs, their journals, interviews with them, podcasts, um, just everything, films about them, digging, 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 why they said they created and came up with, basically, when I looked across hundreds of them, I could narrow it down to five. And thought this would be an interesting book to like really look at these five key reasons and where would people find themselves within them and decided to make it kind of more fun and more accessible. What's your creative type, which is all about that. And when was it published? 2017. I love your book. And I 
think about it a lot. I think for me personally, as a creative person, and anytime I embark on a, a different project, I always look at what is the motivation, right? Which one of the archetypes am I working from? So yeah. can you tell the audience how I, the book is very lighthearted, but there are still some moments of kind of emotional resonance. And did you have to kind of dig deep to find that ability to tap that within yourself as you were writing? It's interesting you should say that because I stayed mostly out of the book except through voice and the research I'd done and the artists I love and had just a few moments of my own self in it. But I did have a few moments and one was remembering my parents, both my mother and my father, so supportive of my creativity in whatever direction it was in at the time. And when my parents reached their 25th anniversary, and um, it was sadly their last anniversary, but it was a big one. We were throwing a surprise party for them. It was going to be in the basement of our house. Everybody gathered in the basement. And how were we going to get them down there? And we thought about different things. So what would be the thing that could get them both running down the stairs? This is going to make me cry, Julian. At the same time was I told them I had finished a painting I was working on. And that did the trick. And they both came running down the stairs and, you know, surprise. And that was such emblematic of how they supported my creative pursuits. It's lovely. And so can you tell us about this new book that you're working on? I'm writing another uh, creative motivation book, but this time specifically for writers. Writers are the most neurotic among the different artists. And the things we say to ourselves are so awful and so damaging and so absurd and ridiculous. They said that very same thing to themselves many times. How did they push through, you know, to the other side? Mm -hmm. How did they stop that kind of constant negative chatter in their heads, basically? Well, I think interestingly, although you're gearing this for writers, I think that a lot of people could benefit because I do think that inner critic and the inner critical voice is something that most of us struggle with, right? And I think it's especially acute and incredibly problematic with women where women are probably the harshest critics of their own selves and don't see themselves in the ways that perhaps the world sees them. Oh, absolutely true. I agree. I think women are so hard on themselves and so much more likely perhaps to let outside rejection or comments or whatever really infiltrate. It's not Mm -hmm. to say that men don't also, but I think women already being hard on themselves. See if you can not keep doing that to yourself, at least treat yourself more kindly, you know? It's so funny because I don't, obviously I'm not teaching writing anymore, but as a yoga teacher, that's one of my biggest, I think, intentions as a teacher is to get people to think with greater kindness toward their own bodies and then actually toward themselves. So we're at the end. If you could find one song that either resonates with you or in some way feels as if we're describing your life, what would that song be? 
oh my god i'm gonna look at my <laughs> itunes right now as we're no no cheating <laughs> i've got to cheat that's too hard i love too many songs the first one i just saw was a hanukkah song but that would not really work for this <laughs> <laughs> i'm going to say this is just so silly i'm gonna say good day sunshine because the beatles i love the beatles and it won't stop raining where i'm at um and you said that i'm full of joy and awe and wonder and so sunshine works with that how's that yes i love that it's actually appropriate <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for doing this Meta. can you please tell the audience the full title of your book and where they can find it yes it's called what's your creative type and it's on Amazon, it's in indie bookstores, online. You can occasionally still find it in a book's actual brick and mortar bookstore. But um, yeah, easy to get hold of and um, easy to read through and kind of keep returning back to, I think. And if people have comments or questions for you, is there a way they can reach you, perhaps via website or... Yeah, I'm totally open to emails. My email address is Meta, so it's M-E-T-A at MetaWagner.com. Okay, fantastic. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Phoenix Tales, a show about women overcoming challenges and like the Phoenix to be reborn, their lives reimagined. Make sure to tune in to our next episode to hear another inspired story. I am Yuliana Kim Grant. The show is edited by Podigy. Music is by Ryan Pruitt. It's like a dream, so let me never wake up. I was so hung up on myself, just like a stick in the mud. A little time, a little patience when I got tired of waiting. Then I found that gem within me sticking out of the mud. And they go ask me why I do it. I'm going to say this because we going to be the best on earth, just like we be out in rust. Pass behind me like a book bag, hanging down a coat rack. Focused on the future, not that could or should or would have. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave your comments on the platform where you get your podcasts. If you think you have a Phoenix tale, please send us a note on our Instagram and Facebook pages. If you just want to stay connected to Phoenix Tales, once again, you can go on to our Instagram and Facebook pages to get all the latest updates.